This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. In reverence for God's word, if you are able, please stand. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're returning this morning to our series through First and Second Peter, and uh, we'll take the month of September to, to wrap it up. We'll take the month of September to look at Second Peter before moving on <clears throat> uh, to something else. And I'll give you more details of the background and kind of what's going on contextually in Second Peter uh, from a cultural and historical standpoint as we make our way through. This morning, I really just want us to be able to see how much we have in common with the people to whom Peter was writing. From the text, you can tell that these people were in danger. There was danger from without. There was, you know, Nero was on the throne by now. There was persecution that was beginning to bubble up uh, sporadically throughout the empire. They were being persecuted. So there's that kind of danger externally. There was danger within the church. When we get to chapter 2, we're going to see Peter talking really harshly and appropriately so, about false teachers that are rising up within the church. But the greatest danger, I believe, that they were facing is the danger that Peter addresses here right from the outset, and that was their own disengagement from their spiritual life. They were not taking their faith seriously. As a result, they were either in Danger of experiencing or we're already experiencing several things that were hinted at in the passage that we read this morning. One is despair. Forgetting that they were cleansed from their former sins. 
Peter had also asked them to confirm their calling election, which, an election which meant that they must have had some sense or a risk of having some sense of a, of a lack of assurance concerning their own calling and election, concerning their very salvation. So, so he tells these people that are so nearsighted and blind that there are things that, he's, that God's calling them to do so that they will have that assurance. In fact, the, the fact that they are nearsighted to the point of being blind means that they either have no concern for the future or they have no hope concerning the future. And so because they're spiritually nearsighted to the nth degree, such that all they can see is what's right in front of them, and because there was plenty to distract them, you know, all the, the persecution that was happening, the false teachers need to be dealt with, plenty to distract them, they were ignoring the one relationship that mattered more than any others. Their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so consequently, Peter knows that they're in danger. At the end of the passage that we just heard read, Peter warns them. Actually, he says to them, if you do what I say, you won't fall. And so implicit there is a warning that if they don't do what he says in this passage, they are in danger of falling. Falling deeper into sin of falling in some especially destructive way, of falling in the most devastating sense possible, such that those who thought that they were Christians discover too late that they never in fact were. According to the American College of Emergency Physicians, one of the warning signs that a medical emergency requiring immediate attention is occurring is bleeding that won't stop. Now, it seems obvious from an external standpoint, right? But not so much when it comes to internal bleeding. In fact, the symptoms of internal bleeding, while they can be, you know, really unpleasant, it's not immediately obvious that they are severe. You need to know what to be looking for so you can act quickly. How do you know when you're bleeding out spiritually? Symptoms may not seem that serious or even that obvious. Discouragement in your walk with the Lord, right? I mean, we all feel that. Disengagement from your disciplines of grace. Doubt about your salvation. Becoming easily distracted, you know, such that days pass by before you realize, I've never even spent time in God's word or prayer. Those are warning signs of a problem that really does require immediate attention. So if you, if you see yourself in any way like that, please be listening. Please don't let this just be another sermon on another Sunday. There's a sense in 2 Peter here at the beginning that, that Peter is so deeply burdened that before he even gets into the issue of the false teachers that are threatening the church, he says, I want you to focus in on what's going on in your own heart. You not miss some really crucial things and not fall into serious error. He tells us what to do about it. Peter tells us three things in this passage we're going to look at this morning. First of all, Peter says, always remember that your foundation is God's grace. 
Always remember, always remember your foundation is God's grace. But then secondly, never presume upon it. Never presume upon God's grace. And then third, do the hard work of growing your faith. Always, always, always remember your foundation is God's grace. Never presume upon it. And do the hard work of growing your faith. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this text, we're thankful yet again for it. We need the reminders here that, uh, that Peter offers us and ultimately that you are offering us through this portion of your word. And we need the challenge, we need the encouragement to exercise our faith, to do the hard work of growing our faith each and every day, that we might have the assurance that we are indeed one of your own. And we may have the hope that Peter points us to of a glorious entrance into your presence. And so we ask that you would do a work in us. Oh God, those of us who are, who are struggling, Lord, I pray that you would offer encouragement. Those of us who need to get busy, I pray that you would spur us on. Oh God, would you all give us all a sense of hope concerning that great day when either you return or we go to be with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, always remember that your foundation is God's grace. You see this in the first four verses. Take a look at verse 2 and 3 first with me. And I want to point out a few things here. They fall under our four, four headings, if you will. And they alliterate because I'm a preacher. That's what we do. There's a whole class in seminary on alliteration. I'm kidding. There's not. But the, it just happens to work out this way. Presence, right? A sense of God's presence. Talking about the foundation of grace First and foremost, Peter says, consider the fact of your, the reality of your presence with God. Now, where do I see that? I see it in two places. In verse 2 and in verse 3, in both places, Peter talks to us about the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Greek word that he uses there in verse 2, and then again in verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us, is not the word that has to do with head knowledge. It's the word that has to do with intimate relational knowledge. It's the word epigenosis. Right? It's that word of intimate knowledge. It was the same word that in the Hebrew was used to describe Adam's knowing of his wife Eve. And so what Peter's doing right off the bat is pointing to the reality of this presence that we have with God by his grace, this intimate knowledge, not, not a distant kind of head book knowledge, but an actual relational knowledge of God. And so when it comes to your foundation for your life of faith and being all of grace, that's where it starts. Intimacy with Christ, presence with him by his spirit. Second, power. Power for all godliness. Take a look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The next time you're pretty sure that God's power is not available to you for whatever problem you're facing in that moment, remember this verse and that key word, all. All things. His divine power has granted to you all things necessary for life and godliness. So, Presence, intimate knowledge by grace of God. Power for all godliness. Promises. Take a look at verse 3 again. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How about verse 4? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great 
promises. I mean, just go back and read First and Second Peter and make a catalog of all the promises that Peter touches on in those two books. And then go back and look at the teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospels and just make a catalog of all the promises that Jesus gives in those books. Let that be an exercise that you take up over the course of the next few days or weeks. Start marking all the promises of God. They are, you will see, as Peter says, that they are precious. And they are great. And they are God's. Secured by Christ for you. So, so presence, intimate knowledge, power for all godliness. These precious and very great promises. And finally, this promise that we are actually in Christ partakers of the divine nature. So take a look again at verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? It's not time to fully unpack it, but let me just condense it down to this brief definition. What, what Peter's referring to here is simply our union with Christ and the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not that we become gods or somehow become a part of God. It's that by grace... Through faith, we're united to Christ such that it's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says that, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. There's this new thing concerning us by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. And there's the reality of his spirit dwelling within us such that we partake of some of the very life of God. There's the foundation for your life of faith. But the second thing we see is the faith that's needed to, to build on that foundation, the faith that's needed to grow in this grace is itself a gift from God. Peter says that in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. And when you read that word obtained, obtained doesn't mean earned. The Greek word that's used here for obtained is a word that means received by appointment or lot. In other words, God determined to give this faith to you. So the very faith that's needed to appropriate the grace is itself a gift from God. I watched a movie this past weekend, uh, or this weekend, uh, Titled The Biggest Little Farm. Anybody seen it? The Biggest Little Farm. It has become, I think, one of my favorite movies ever. It's a great film. It's actually a documentary. It's a documentary about this couple, John and Molly Chester. John and Molly Chester live out in California and L.A. They decide to, to buy a 200-acre farm an hour north of L.A. It's dead. I mean, it's a dead farm. It had, it had been one of those, you know, monocultural, you know, kind of commercial farms. They were... They were growing uh, apricots. Um, it had gone into foreclosure. There was zero biodiversity. The soil was literally dead. There are like three images of them trying to take a shovel and break it into the ground and the shovel bends. There's this guy who's standing on a pitchfork trying to push the pitchfork through the ground and the pitchfork won't go in. Right? The farm is dead. They had to spend years trying to bring life just back to the dirt. So they could even begin to have something of a farm to renew, if you will, the foundation 
for a sustainable farm. Listen, spiritually speaking, apart from God's grace, your heart is that baked over soil. God doesn't say, listen, I want you to spend the majority of your life doing work that will cause your heart to have the possibility for growth. God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you the very faith needed for the soil of your heart ultimately to bear fruit. And Peter's burden is that we remember, that we not forget. So if you, I'm like, Mark, I've been here 12 years. I've been listening to you talk about this stuff week after week after week. Please don't say enough of God's grace already. <laughs> the Bible doesn't. Peter's burden here. I mean, take a look at verse 3. Take, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Peter's burden is that we remember the grace. Always, always, always remember Your foundation for your life of faith is God's grace. But second, never, ever, ever presume upon it. Never presume upon the foundation. Never presume upon God's grace. Take a look down at the end of the passage, verses 10 and 11. Peter writes there, Therefore, brothers brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you caught it, it feels like there's something of a contradiction there. Peter says, on the one hand, I want you to confirm something. And the something that he's referring to is something that's entirely of God. You're calling and your election. And of course, it's true that, that calling and election is of God. God chose you in Christ, if you're a Christian, from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And you take your Bible, you turn it upside down, and that teaching falls out. Listen, I'm a Calvinist, all right? Third. First, I'm a Christian. Second, I seek to submit my life to God's word and what it teaches. And third, I'm a Calvinist. Now, Calvin was a Calvinist third as well, right? I mean, he was like, first, I'm a Christian. Second, God's word. Calvin here, and Luther as well, and a lot in our Reformed tradition, have said concerning this confirming that it's more of a subjective confirming. That as you live this way, as you strengthen, increase your faith, you will have a greater sense of confirmation in your own heart that you are, in fact, called and elected. Well, that's true. It just doesn't go far enough. Peter is saying here, he's linking it to falling. He's linking it to entrance into the kingdom of God. And so there is this sense in which Peter is saying in a, in a very strong way, it is objectively necessary that you bear fruit in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And so be doing these things 
so that you will bear that fruit. And what that calls to attention is, well, this dynamic that exists within Scripture, this seeming contradiction, but in fact is a complementary truth that we just can't put together in our heads. On the one hand, God is completely sovereign. But on the other hand, we're responsible for the choices that we make. We're responsible to choose for Christ. Jesus can go through the streets of Galilee saying, repent and believe the good news. And he says that without distinction. He shouts it out for all to hear. And yet the same Jesus in John chapter 10 can say, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. They hear my voice, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For the sheep. And so both these things are true. And so if you acknowledge God's sovereignty, rightly recognizing that salvation is all of God, you feel a sense of discomfort here at the end of this passage. But what Peter's doing here is simply emphasizing the human side of it, the human responsibility aspect of it. Why? Well, when we get into chapter 2, we'll see that the false teachers are saying is, listen, as long as you're a Christian, as long as you've said the words, it doesn't matter how you live. And so Peter here is emphasizing the need for us to, to live in a way that accords with our calling and our election. Now, Calvin would say, and, and Peter says, listen, don't forget what I said at the top about God's grace. It's all of God's grace. Even the faith that's needed to appropriate the grace for you to grow is a gift from God. And yet at the same time, you must grow. You must, in a sense, prove that you are who you claim to be by virtue of the fruit that you bear. But at the same time, it's all of God's grace. And all those God who has called, I mean, Jesus said it, right? All that the Father has given me will come to me. And none that the Father has given me will I ever cast away. So both these things are true. The point, however, is not theological Interest. The point, ultimately, is assurance. Peter wants these readers to have a real sense of assurance. To have a sense, as, as Calvin rightly said, and Luther and others, to have a real sense, by virtue of their own active Christian lifestyle, that they are, in fact, those whom God has called to be his own. So, how do we grow in assurance? Third point. Do the hard work of growing your faith. Do the hard work of growing your faith. So we're going to finish up with a, a why, uh, a what, and a when. All right? Why, what, and when when it comes to doing the hard work of growing your faith. Why? Why do the hard work of growing your faith? Because Scripture commands it. Because the Bible says to do it. It's not a contradiction to call Christians to work. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, gives a command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You read all throughout the Bible of the need to put to death the misdeeds of the body, of the need to, to overcome, to need to do all these things when it comes to actually working out our salvation. Now, the other side of that that's foundationally true is in Philippians 2, 13, 4, 
It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So there's the whole Christian life held together in those two verses. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be growing in your faith. Be doing the hard work of it. Precisely because it is God who is at work in you to do that very work. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. I love the way Dick Lucas put it. Dick Lucas said this. It is true that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Absolutely true. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But it is not true that with Christ, we need do nothing. We're called to exercise our faith. Why? First and foremost, because Scripture says to. But Peter gives us greater and further information here in this passage. He tells us it's the only way to ensure a certain kind of life. So take a look with me at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he gives us a picture of the kind of life that we will experience as we do the hard work of growing our faith. So verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Now that word ineffective is actually the word that has to do with being idle. So they keep you from being idle. Positively speaking, if these qualities are yours and ever-increasing, if you're doing the hard work of growing your faith, you will have a useful Christian life. You will be an instrument in God's hands for accomplishing his work in the world. You won't be just idle, kind of spinning your wheels, just kind of faking it till you make it. You'll experience a useful Christian life in the hands of your king. And, he goes on in verse 8, a fruitful life. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And again, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There again, it's relational knowledge. It's not head knowledge. He's not saying you'll be fruitful in the sense that you'll gain more intellectual understanding about Jesus. What he's saying is, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit in the world. Usefulness, fruitfulness, I would say hopefulness. When he talks about being so nearsighted that you're blind in verse 9, that, that, right? nearsighted means you can only see what's right in front of you. You can't see things at a distance. So when it comes to the thing that Peter emphasizes throughout 1 Peter and into 2 Peter, especially through to the end, that glorious return of Jesus are going to be with him, that we need, as the author of Hebrews would say, to have our eyes fixed upon Oh, if you're so nearsighted that you're blind, you don't see that. And consequently, you so quickly lose hope. If, however, Peter says these qualities are growing in you, you will be hopeful, useful, fruitful, hopeful, holy, living a holy life. Because verse 9, he talks about the fact that they were forgetting that they had been cleansed from their former sins. And so, apart from the growth of their faith on the foundation of grace, there's this sense in which we're always feeling as though we're captured by our former sins. That we're not indeed free from the desires of our hearts that wage war against the Spirit. And the thought of actually living a holy life seems impossible. But Peter says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, again, built on the foundation of faith, appropriated only by the faith that is itself a gift, 
you'll increasingly live a holy life. And with that, a happy life. I love the Westminster Children's Shorter Catechism. I can't remember the question and answer. I just remember the answer. God made us to live a holy and happy life. The two go together. Some of you kids could probably shout it out right now. Feel free. God wants us to live a useful, fruitful, hopeful, holy, and consequently a truly happy life. And that's promised as we do the hard work of growing our faith. So that's the why. How about the what? What will characterize a life of growing faith? And you see it in verses 5 through 7. It's really the heart of the passage. Let's take a look. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement or to add, to supplement your faith or to add to your faith virtue. Now let me stop there. This, this sequence that we're about to read, the, the, um, the figure of speech that Peter uses doesn't mean that it has to be considered sequentially. So just the, the way in which he's writing, the construction of the sentence, etc., it, it doesn't have to be taken as this and then this, and then this on top of that, and then that on top of that. It, it actually, depending on context, there need not be any discernible sequence. It's just a matter of saying this ought to characterize it, this ought to characterize it, this ought to characterize it, okay? So where he begins is important, faith, and where he ends is important, love. That's the calling of the Christian life, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You only get there through faith. But in between, what's he say? Let's just hit him real quick. Add, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue is simply a word that describes moral excellence. It describes your moral behavior. Virtue, knowledge. That there, the knowledge is actually not that sense of epignosis, that intimate knowledge. It's gnosis. It's actual knowledge. And then you see the idea in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, where Pete, Paul there talks about this wisdom and discernment, an increasing ability to know the right thing to do in any given situation. That's the knowledge that Peter's talking about here. Self-control, self-control in the face of all kinds of temptation. Steadfastness, steadfastness in the midst of all types of trials. Godliness, that word godliness simply just means devotion to God. Brotherly affection, an increasing love for one another. And then finally, love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of all. So there's the what. How about the when? When are these qualities developed? And here's where we're going to wrap up. As you draw near to Christ. First and foremost, where are these qualities developed in your life as you continue to draw near to Christ? None of the exercising of your faith that we're going to talk about in a second happens apart from Christ. We're always needing to draw near to Christ. So if right now what you are feeling is an utter sense of despair or discouragement, draw near to Christ. Draw near to Christ. By God's grace, you are in intimate relationship with him through faith, the faith that he himself gave you as a gift. And so draw near. How? How draw near? The means of grace. Right here, hearing the word of God proclaimed. 
being together with God's people, singing God's praises, receiving the sacrament by faith, enjoying fellowship with God's people, in your private life, studying God's word, privately and publicly praying. These are the ways in which we draw near to Jesus. And of course, the promise from James, draw near to God. And what will God do? He'll draw near to you. So as you draw near to Christ, make use of the means of grace. Second, get in community. Get in community. John and Molly Chester, one of the first things they did as they began to develop this farm was see how much help they needed. And so they got online and put out an email or put out a post online wherever and said, listen, if you want to be part of developing a uh, biodiverse, sustainable farm, come join us. Well, guess what? In the church, we have the opportunity to help one another nurture hearts, your heart and mine, your faith and mine, such that great fruit can grow in our lives individually and in our life together. So get in community. Now you heard Eric pray about this earlier, the fact that growth groups are going to be starting up in the next few weeks. I'm going to talk a little bit next week about discipleship classes because next week the focus really is on the centrality of God's Word, so we'll get there next week. This week, I just want to talk about the fact that we need one another for this growth. You can't do this in isolation. You will die in isolation. So get in community. Join one of these groups. There'll be more information about the groups next week. So these qualities develop as we draw near to Christ, but fundamentally, it's as our faith is exercised when we face trials and temptations. That's when our faith gets exercised, when we come up against resistance. Listen, we go to the gym. You go to the gym. I need to go to the gym. We go to the gym to exercise our bodies, right? And the best kind of exercise physically is resistance exercise, right? Well, when it, spiritually speaking, when it comes to exercising your faith, the gym comes to you. Isn't that great? Absolutely no membership fee. The world of flesh and the devil is always ready to provide the resistance that your faith needs in order to grow. You don't have to go looking for an opportunity. They come to you. But when those opportunities come, see them for what they are. I know the temptation is hard. I'm tempted all the time. I know the trials are hard. But remember, Peter would say, remember what God's up to in the midst of this. Remember what he is seeking to do in you. In the midst of this, in the face of this, get other people around you in community so they can remind you of the same. But in that moment, exercise your faith, and your faith will grow. That's good news. That's such good news. Beginning and middle, all of grace. All of grace. And yet, we're called to work. We're called to exercise our faith. We're called to die to self. I titled this sermon Addition by Subtraction because it's not so much that we're adding things to our faith as it is that we are denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Jesus in the hard life of faith.
So let's wrap it up. At the beginning of his second letter, in which he is seeking to stir up his readers by way of reminder, Peter challenges them to make every effort to grow in grace. They are called. They are elected. They are cleansed. They've been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. They, you, if your faith is in Christ, have the promises of God secured for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have immense hope and consequently immense joy because you have been made recipients of these great and precious promises in Christ. However, we must make every effort, give all diligence to growing our faith. And as we do, we will experience greater effectiveness, greater fruitfulness, greater assurance, and greater hope. My favorite uh, symphony is Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Now, I know some of you are world-class musicians, so forgive me if I just blunder things, all right? I'm not even going to make an effort to sound like I know what I'm talking about, all right? Man's got to know his limitations, all right? But at the end of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, end of the fourth movement, maybe the last couple minutes, I don't know what you call that part. I call it amazing. When I listen to that, and I listen to it all the time, I encourage you to listen to it. If you can get your hands on George Zell's 1950-ish performance with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, do that. If not, I heard um, Ward Stair and the RPO do it either last year or the year before. It was awesome as well. But at the end of Tchaikovsky's Fifth, when I hear it, I, I picture something that I know Tchaikovsky wasn't picturing. But I, I picture... Picture Jesus entering the throne room after his ascension. I picture the, the, all the witnesses, all the martyrs. I, I picture the, the saints from of old who have gone on and are, are there. I, I picture the, the angels, and the myriads numbering thousands upon ten thousands. I picture the Father. And I picture Jesus entering in triumphal procession and making his way to the throne. And what Peter is saying here at the end of verse 11 is that, that in Christ, that can be your song as well. That we're not just faking it till we make it. By God's grace, there's a sense in which, well, let me just read it, right? Richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hear that, and by God's grace, I hear the end of Tchaikovsky's fifth. And I hear the day that I go to be with Jesus. And I hope you hear the day that you go to be with Jesus. I hope you hear the day that Jesus welcomes you into his kingdom. And I hope you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, not with a shrug, but with a shout. And that you can respond as I will respond. All glory, praise, and honor to you, Lord Jesus. Always remember your foundation is God's grace. Always, 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 but never, ever, ever presume upon it. Rather, be doing the hard work of growing your faith each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this, your word that you have provided to us. We thank you for your spirit by which your word lives and by which our flesh dies. 
And we pray, O God, that as we come before your word, your word would invade our hearts. You would grant us not only that great gift of repentance, but that great gift of faith. And would you, by the power of your spirit, give us great zeal to be exercising that faith each and every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.